What's up, guys? Welcome to True Crime Queen. My name is Ginger. Listener discretion is advised. The dark nature of the show is not suitable for young ears or those sensitive to graphic material. But without further ado, let's go. Today's crime case is so far the heaviest one I've ever done. It totals seven horrendous murders, possibly more he hasn't fully confessed to, up to ten possible child abductions, and a few survivors in between even. This guy is what nightmares are truly made of. It's Joseph Edward Duncan III. This case is especially brutal. It has many crimes against children with sexual abuse. Please, even if you think it might not trigger you, I'm warning you now. There is some very dark shit in store today, so proceed with caution. So during my research of this case, I actually found that this particular killer has been continuing to post to a public blog that he must be running with someone he communicates with via pen pal letters. I knew a lot of the case already, considering I am located fairly close to some of the incidents related to his crimes. However, I was not ready to find his actual words and, like, personal thoughts. I have compiled what I think is appropriate for retelling the story with both accounts from survivors as well as the killer himself, which you do not get that kind of access to perspective usually. So starting at the very beginning, on February 25th, 1963, born into a large military family and was said to have moved every two years from base to base until about age 12, when their family finally settles in Tacoma, Washington, Joseph Duncan was said to have only completed high school until sophomore year when he didn't return from winter break to Lakes High School. This was because he was actually arrested, but the articles posted don't explain that usually. I also found that his reported GPA in the 10th grade was just a 1.7 out of 4.0. He said that that was mainly due to the fact that his parents were in the middle of a divorce at the time and almost always fighting. But don't let that fool you, because this killer is quite above the average intelligence level, to be honest. There's three very different public accounts of their childhood upbringing in Joseph's family home. He is one of five children, and the younger one brother of his, Bruce, says to reporters in 2005 that their family was completely normal. There wasn't any abuse, they attended church often, they even grew up as Boy Scouts together. Their sister, though, Sherry, states things very differently at a hearing in 2013 to determine Joseph Duncan's mental competency. She described a very emotionally abusive mother while growing up. She recalls that mostly while their father was deployed in the army, their mother would often smack, yelling at them about men, claiming how worthless they are, but yet obsessively attending the church. Joseph himself claims to have been more specifically sexually active from a young age, a very young age, with the women in his family, though not fully aware what it was at the time that it was happening. There was also some incidents that had occurred while he was forced to live at a boy's ranch in 1978. Then according to blog entries Joseph wrote himself, he was actually violently raped while in a mental hospital a few years after his time at the ranch. Neither of the siblings have said anything in regards to their family history or have agreed to Joseph's statements regarding the childhood abuse. Bruce even tells reporters that those were simply just lies told by Joseph. 
but Joseph seems to believe that his brother was very traumatized by some of the events, and he just chooses to ignore it altogether. And that Bruce himself had even done some of the same things that Joseph was arrested and charged for. Yet even as a young man, the charges were described by Joseph as very exaggerated and misunderstandings due to his age and ignorance of the situation. His first recorded crime is in 1978 after a fight with his mom when he's 15 years old. It starts out normal enough for a teenage boy. He takes a little joyride in a car without getting caught, then ditches it because he accidentally bent the axle, hitting and running over some mailboxes with some other kids that he had picked up. But later, when he's no longer with the boys, it's late at night, and while he's making his way back home, he walks by another car that is seemingly left alone running to warm up. So he decides to just take it a few blocks over and ditch it so he can just return home where his mother should be sleeping. But as it turns out, she's actually awake, so he avoids the house and takes off again. But this time towards the freeway, because apparently his little 15-year-old brain says, fuck it, I'm just going to move to Canada and live my life on the run rather than deal with the ass-kicking my mom's going to give me. So he realizes he needs gas, and he pulls off the interstate to get it. But someone there has heard that the stolen car report through their police scanner. So he leaves the station after getting gas, unbeknownst to him that he was just reported seen in the stolen car. And soon, a cruiser gets behind him with his lights on. But that's when Duncan really says, fuck it, and punches the gas. But you guys, it was an orange Ford Pinto. So even though punching it sounds like you're going really fast, he's really not going any fucking where in reality versus that police cruiser. However, he's now running from the police in stinky Tacoma, Washington, 15 years old, in an orange bean, to paint this picture for you just right. He runs a few lights and gets onto a bridge when police radio for a roadblock on the other side to stop the orange pinto of death, which is actually just a really ballsy 15-year-old all hopped up on Mountain Dew or some shit. He sees a small gap through the police cruiser blocking his path and decides again, fuck it, I'm squeezing through that gap. But at that very same moment, a police officer gets out of the car with a loaded pump shotgun now aimed directly at Duncan's head as he's fucking busting through this little gap. Not realizing the officer would actually shoot an unarmed 15-year-old, Joseph rears by, just barely missing, getting shot in the fucking head, and only makes it a few more blocks before crashing into a pole. The injuries land him in the hospital for over a month or so before he's placed in a juvenile detention center, and no shit, he says on his blog that upon entering the juvie center, he's made to watch that show Scared Straight. Do you guys remember that show? Like, when they yell and punish at all the angsty teens into submission? They made him watch that, in juvie, in 1978. After a few months in juvie, he is then sent to Dislin's Boys Ranch outside of Tacoma. In his blog entries, he says that this is the place where basically he begins getting confused about sexuality and his misperceptions of consequences due to the true lack of supervision there. He claims that while living at the ranch, a nearby farmer man was able to take him to his trailer where they did have complicit sexual fondling, but this man is much older and under the claim to the boys ranch that Joseph would be doing yard work and that type of thing for the man. This later interferes with Joseph's understanding of what's okay and what's not in regards to sex with others because he was aware of what the man wanted to do with him, but simply wasn't off-put by it. Overall, he actually admits that his experience at the ranch was a blast to him compared to his home life where his parents were always fighting. Supposedly, this ranch helps you get job training for teenagers. While he's at his cook job in a nearby hospital, he meets an older man who was also a cook. 
So this guy further screws up Duncan's understanding of sexuality with some weird-ass conversations that they would have at work about how that dude loves paying prostitutes for golden showers, you know, because that's a totally normal conversation to have with a 16-year-old boy at a boy's ranch, but whatever. Furthermore, he then commits his own sex crime against someone else for the first time while he's at this ranch. He manages to pull a younger boy at the park next to the hospital that he works at into some bushes and attempts to pull down his pants to experiment on him like the farm man did to Joseph. But when Joseph pulls out a kitchen knife, the little boy screams and runs away yelling for help, which spooks the shit out of Joseph, so he runs the other way, but was really never caught for this first attempted assault. After a year at the ranch upon completion for his little joyride, his probation officer sends him back home where Joseph finds that his parents have officially gotten divorced and his dad has moved away. He starts to feel guilty, like it was his fault, and he sort of becomes depressed and shit starts going further downhill. This is when he begins to break into nearby homes. He said he's watching girls in the bathroom, and he's even experimenting sexually in like random circumstances he finds himself in where he's not going to get in trouble for it. I mean, to be honest, he's only 15 years old and just trying to figure himself out. It's at this time that he starts getting the urge to be more violent, though, in his sexual curiosities, and he needs to act out, apparently. So in 1980, at the age of 17, he is again arrested at his home in Tacoma after he breaks into his older neighbor's house, steals four of his pistols, a thousand rounds of ammo for him, the old man's porno mags, and his car. He then decides, instead of going home and just jerking it to the magazines like a normal person would, he unloads the gun and decides to force a 14-year-old into the car from outside of a nearby school. He says in his blog entries that he was attempting to find a girl, but all he could find was a boy, so you know, oh well. Anyways, he drives to the wooded area where Duncan makes the 14-year-old boy strip, tells him to give him a blowjob acting as if the gun is loaded, though he doesn't exactly know what a blowjob is. So this is not successful, and then he decides to burn the poor kid slightly with cigarettes before allowing him to leave the area on his own. He had apparently gotten the cigarette idea from the farmer creep that had first molested Joseph while at the ranch. I found a little entry Joseph Duncan had made on his blog concerning this day where he details the recollection of events with the boy, and he says, as an adult, some 30 years later, this boy testified at my death penalty sentencing trial that this was by far the most painful and terrifying experience of his life. At the time, I thought I was being nice to him and maybe even teaching him some fun things. He seems to have felt that the boy was very sheltered or feeling scared of some of the things that Duncan had done to him since when he learned about them from his molester, he was more curious than scared and wasn't expecting that. He even said that he felt like the boy was sort of lucky in a way that he lived such a life that that had been the worst thing that had ever happened to him considering all of the things that Joseph had been through by the trial for death. It doesn't seem very remorseful to me, which I don't think he is remorseful for most of the crimes he's committed. He boldly explains that the reason he's ever done something illegal were due to the misconceptions of what's acceptable and the experiences he had that were supposed to be consequences, but really just proved to Duncan that criminals are victims too. I know that doesn't make a lot of sense. It might later, it might not. We're talking about a serial killer here. He's like really put some thought into what makes a person do the things they do. Like I said, he's not really just some dumb motherfucker like BTK or something. His actions are methodical as well as strategically planned with a little weird logic and reason. 
Back to 1979, though. Luckily, the police are waiting for Duncan by the time he arrives back home from abducting that 14-year-old boy. He's arrested and then sentenced a maximum of 20 years for this crime spree, but before serving time, he must attend sexual offender treatment from the Western State Mental Hospital in Washington, as they have charged him with rape. While receiving the treatment in 1982, it's noted that Duncan had left the grounds on the cottage used for the weekends with family members without supervision that you could earn as like a perk for good behavior. He decides to go out peeping into the windows of nearby young women. It's really just typical teenager shit. When some dogs begin to notice him and start barking, he flees back to the cottage where his mom was visiting. And two weeks later, Duncan requests that he's sent to prison to serve his term rather than complete this program. And I bet you're thinking, huh? But Duncan's personal blog posts indicate that he decided serving time in prison would be better for him and his mother because she was actually being sexually harassed with sexual propositions in exchange for pushing her son Joseph through the program successfully, all by some sleazebag counselor running his therapy group. He also journals about a not-so-nice rape experience he had while at the hospital, but basically says the whole place is a fucking joke, just like the boys' ranch he was sent to a couple years earlier. Who knows if that's true, but I don't see why Duncan would lie about it, especially 30, almost 40 years later after the fact. But either way, I figured it would make more sense to explain when all the articles just vaguely say that Joseph had requested to be sent to prison instead of just, like, getting kicked out of the treatment program or being forced to go to prison. But what he doesn't know was that the man harassing his mom would would deem him a sexual psychopath and untreatable, which at that time would end up categorizing him very harshly as an adult sex offender when he's really just 17. The loopholes in that system, from what I understand, would start a cycle of false hope and further misunderstanding of his initial crimes, being that he was still not technically an adult. In his first years at the real prison, he would also go on to really learn about sex again, but not the age-appropriate or consensual kind. He becomes very privy to the system and how much is actually going to take away from his life, so this is when he starts focusing on the day that he can be free again, but this time it's to get back at the corrupted prison system and the people that support it. Joseph Duncan's earliest chance at being released on parole would be in 1987 due to his offender status, though they denied his first request due to him needing a place to live as well as taking a few more classes to earn his GED than associates. The next year, Joseph's mother attempts to write the parole board concerning him and claiming that as a result of Joseph's liberal father's influence, he committed the prior crimes despite her very Christian efforts of raising a good law-abiding citizen. Joseph also requested that he be released into his mother's home and supervision, though that was also denied. Then at some point, Duncan even convinces a guy from Linwood, Washington, named David Wolfert to start writing the parole board on his behalf as well. This Mr. Wolfert insisted that Joseph Duncan was a changed man and even stated that he was no longer a threat to society since his childhood crimes. Apparently, they had been writing to each other as pen pals since around 1991, and he had actually wrote a couple times regarding Duncan's upcoming parole review, and then the dude even loaned Duncan three grand to pay rent at his halfway house upon his eventual granted parole release in 1994. Court documents later reveal that Wolford and Duncan had in fact at some point been in a sexual relationship together, so to me, that sounds like Duncan managed to get himself a little bit of a sugar daddy in prison, But Duncan never refers to him that way. When he's 31 years old, Joseph is released on parole for good behavior from the Walla Walla State Penitentiary after serving 14 of the original 20-year sentence. 
He details on his blog that David and his mother had picked him up from jail and then spent some time doing some touristy shit in Seattle. But all while faking it to be so in awe and thankful that he's outside of prison again. Because he actually has some dark fucking plans for, like, a retaliation to society, as he put it. He even describes himself as being a model parolee just for the act of it all. So, he's living in the halfway house and holding down two jobs in Seattle. Joseph's got himself a sort of girlfriend and a sugar daddy. He's able to purchase himself a car and further prepares for the opportunity to strike where he can successfully commit a crime so heinous, but smart enough that he's not going to be easily caught. He's even making sure to admit to harmless parole violations like unknowingly moving his brother's concealed handgun off his desk so he wouldn't fuck up a random polygraph question while being reviewed like, have you come in contact with a handgun recently? I mean, this guy is trying really hard to seemingly be normal with intentions of turning his life around, at least on the outside anyway. So he's living with a gay couple and often hangs out with some woman who is actually married but trying to separate from her husband, who is his sort of girlfriend, I would say. After getting some ice cream with that girlfriend and narrowly avoiding a fight with her husband over it, he's sitting by himself in Seattle eating some ice cream contemplating the worst crimes he can think of to get back for being so misunderstood when the opportunity he's been waiting for, unfortunately, presents itself. Two young girls come walking by the car Joseph is sitting in, eating his ice cream, alone, in the dark. He notices them and ditches the fucking ice cream as he sees them veer off behind some close businesses and then down an alley. He thinks he might not be seen grabbing them if he's careful enough, but he actually loses sight of them for a moment before they re-emerge from behind a concrete wall of a closed business after he parks his car. He decides to confront them as if he owns the property, and he ushers them back behind the wall and starts drilling them about why they're there and what they're doing. He quickly asks them all the right questions to make them feel like he's more of an authority figure rather than the actual predator he is. And he has them so scared out of their little preteen minds about being in trouble for trespassing, so he takes this perfect opportunity to convince them into the car to teach them a lesson, as he put it. He then drives them to an abandoned barn in Bothell, Washington, that he once found while on a joyride during a lunch break because he works in the area. He says he had attempted but failed to rape the girls in the barn, so instead he kills them as cleanly and quickly as possible, whatever that means so as to not cause a ruckus or for them to not suffer. I'm not sure what he did, honestly, but he does go into what happened next. His own retelling of this parental nightmare, he admits to using their bodies for sexual purposes the day after he had killed them when he returned to the abandoned barn to better conceal their bodies. After half-assed digging a grave, he partially dismembers one of the girl's bodies to fit more compactly, as he put it, then he struggled to have sex with the other body purely out of curiosity and, quite frankly, circumstances. He then finishes the shallow grave, covers it with some old wood nearby, and leaves them for two years before their skeletons are discovered. Joseph wouldn't be linked to the case until his own confession years after that. The day after the murders, when the girls haven't returned back to the motel, the two half-sisters are reportedly missing by their family members in Seattle. They're all said to have been living in the Crest Motel temporarily, and they last saw the girls leaving the motel to grab some cigarettes and panhandle near the local taco time. Joseph Duncan's own roommate was said to be helping the sisters' family post up missing persons flyers when Joseph scoffed at the fact that his friend was even helping, complaining that the girls in the pictures looked like gangbangers anyway, and that it was just a waste of his time. But really, he did this just to throw off any association with them. 
Let me just say, though, it's fucking 1996 in Seattle, and every teenage girl looks grungy as fuck. Also, apparently the pictures were used from Halloween the year before, so fucking there, Joseph. You can kick rocks. Since he found himself unsuccessful on his first opportunity, he starts targeting other people in the area for any possible children he can abduct. He actually zeroes in on a young mother in a local Target who's there shopping with her two young boys. He ends up following them home from Target and then even watches their house for a few hours before deciding to enter one of their half-open sliding doors. He's creeping around the home when he's seen by the mother and her children where they're laying on her bed watching television. He forces the mom into the living room and yells at the kids to stay in the bedroom. And while he's mustering up the courage to hit this mother in the back of the head with a hammer he finds, just so he can make off with the boys, by the grace of God, her husband begins to enter the locked front door. That's when Joseph dashes out the backsliding door and lays low until he ditches the area as calmly as he possibly can. He never once hears about the occurrence on the local news, so he personally assumes that this was possibly the home of a Seattle-based cop who didn't want it run on the media. And here's just a big life tip for everybody, because Jesus Christ, people, just lock your doors and your windows, because you really never know who is literally out there just looking to ruin your fucking life. Like this asshole. So Joseph starts getting paranoid about pissing dirty on a random UA, but he can't stop smoking so much weed because he's so paranoid about going back to jail for maybe getting caught for murder. So he decides that before he inevitably goes back to prison, he's going to stick it to the system. So he quits his jobs in the suburbs of Seattle, trades cars with that woman who's married, and then he takes off towards Oregon and virtually disappears from the supervision of his parole board. The moment he leaves the state of Washington, he becomes a federal fugitive and knows he needs to be super careful. His blog entries indicate that he slightly cleans up his appearance as to not as easily be recognized if, in fact, the task force is looking for him. While in Oregon, he decides he's going to drive to California and attempt to abduct another child for his own sexual gratification. In this blog entry he posted regarding this time in his life, this is a blog entry he posted regarding this time in his life. I targeted almost every child I spotted out in the open and passed over many after stalking them briefly when I determined they were not quite vulnerable enough because there were too many people around, too many threats, or just too difficult for me to get control over them. So basically, never let go of your babies, people. Those stupid little leash things for your kids aren't just for when they run off, but they're for fucking potential psychos like this butt plug who's just waiting for one person to be slipping. On April 14, 1997, in Beaumont, Riverside County, California, when Joseph decides to approach a group of young boys he observes playing in the alley behind their homes, he asks them for help in finding his lost cat. How fucking original, right? But these kids don't fall for his bullshit and they refuse to help. That is, until Joseph pulls out his wallet and starts offering a dollar to all the boys that will help him. He even printed out a picture of his cat in Seattle before he left town for this exact fucking reason. When one of the boys approaches for the money he's offering, that's when he makes a move for the youngest child there. Though his 10-year-old brother, Anthony Martinez, steps between him and Duncan, and that's when at knife point, Joseph grabs Anthony and throws him into the backseat of the borrowed white town car and dips off towards the interstate as fast as he can. The boys in the group were able to describe Joseph well enough for a composite sketch to be made, and it was quickly shared in the media, though it wasn't until circling vultures above brings a park ranger to the boy's partially decomposed remains two weeks later. He was found 70 miles away from his home in a desert ravine near Indio, California. He was nude, bound with duct tape, found to have a crushed skull. 
he was somewhat buried underneath a slope of rocks, and the truth is that Joseph had him secluded for multiple hours, even at some points where the boy should have maybe considered running away since Joseph only had a pocket knife. Joseph admits to leaving a souvenir package of sorts not far away from the ravine that Anthony was found in. He says police had never found it because he actually drove back to the area a little while later and retrieved it. He said it was to contain Polaroid photos of the boy during his abduction, as well as the knife used to force him to comply with the abuse. Anthony's case will also go cold until after Joseph's final arrest years later. And I just want to add that that little boy was so fucking brave. He told Joseph when informing the boy that he was going to have to kill him. Anthony said he believes in God, so he knew he would go to heaven. And for real, how pure is that? That poor kid even saved his brother from this horrific circumstance. That poor kid even saved his own brother, and it's just horrible the circumstances that led to this poor kid being used as a statement to the system. So from California, Joseph plays hopscotch at the Mexican border for a while due to him not having enough money to bring his car over. So while he's driving around in Texas, he actually gets pulled over near the border, though his warrant has not been issued yet back from Washington, and after being searched for possibly smuggling illegals, he was let go, free to drive off to further commit horrible crimes against children. He next has an interesting stint with a hitchhiker that actually attempts to carjack Duncan, but he finally calls his father and asks him to wire him some money so that he can head up to Missouri to visit his half-sister, which he does. He spends the next few weeks at his half-sister's family's house, while his father and his stepmother drive down from Nevada to help Joseph figure out where to stay next. While staying at her home, her three teenage boys had convinced Uncle Joe to call the local police when they were unable to get her to open a bedroom door after locking herself in during an emotional breakdown. Because, you know, having a fugitive stay in your home is very fucking stressful, I'm sure. But Joseph actually does call the police, fully prepared to go to jail possibly, but also because the boys are so worried that their mom might actually hurt herself. The police come, they talk to her, they leave, and Joseph is still on the run technically because nothing happens that day. By his own admission, he could tell that his father and half-sister were somewhat suspicious of the possible involvement in the Martinez case that was now being heavily publicized in the media. His family convinces him to maybe follow them back to Nevada, where he can then head to Canada to begin a new life, but it doesn't quite work out that way because a little while later, in August of 97, Joseph is recovered by the Fugitive Task Force at his sister's place and arrested for leaving the state of Washington while on parole. They send him back up to Monroe, Washington to finish out the last couple years of his original sentence, but they have no fucking clue he actually murdered three people while out of prison, on parole, for good behavior. So while serving the rest of his time, he is transferred near Spokane, Washington. He manages to round up a second sugar daddy in the meantime. It's September 1997, and Joseph Duncan's parole officer gets a very weird call from some random doctor who lives in North Dakota, claiming to have originally met Joseph in a San Francisco coffee shop years earlier. Joseph writes on his blog that this coffee shop bit was actually a lie because they really met in a gay bar, though this Dr. Richard Waxman of Fargo, North Dakota goes on to even offer his own family's home as a halfway house upon Duncan's possible upcoming parole, but really is just willing to do whatever to help Duncan get on his feet upon his actual release. And it turns out this doctor is both married and bisexual, also with young children in the family home, so the parole board is like, fuck out of here with that shit, and denies the request. It seems like the doctor was maybe harassed enough by his own neighbors after he requested having a sex offender come live in his home. 
So he picks up his shit and moves down to Florida. So beware, anyone in the area of Newport Ritchie, Florida, especially if your child is currently seen by this pediatrician. It wasn't until February 10th, 1998 that the skeletal remains of both 11-year-old Sammy Joe White and 9-year-old Carmen Cubias were found in the abandoned barn where Joseph had left them. A lady who lives in the area of Bothell, Washington, later comes forward recalling seeing a now-convicted Joseph coming into the grocery store she worked at, often with a little girl who she now realizes was 9-year-old Carmen. The state of the remains wouldn't be able to identify their cause of death, though their crushed skulls would indicate it was likely homicide. The case would still be cold for more than nine years. Joseph manages to skate through the remaining years of a sentence due to his knowledge of computers and the classes available, as well as a rather large black man named Big Al that had become his prison wife of sorts, I guess. He notes on his blog that at the same time he was in prison, Wesley Allen Dodd, who's another murdering rapist for a different day, was executed via hanging, and it was meant to send a message to those like Wesley and Joseph. However, Joseph just took it as more of a reason to lash back at society as soon as he was out of prison. In 2000, he's officially released near Spokane, Washington. He's given a bus ticket to Tacoma and stays at his mother's apartment for a few weeks while he gets his driver's license and shit. Then he immediately moves over to Fargo, North Dakota near a sugar daddy doctor. He is living in a halfway house again. He enrolls at the North Dakota State University for computer science to finish up his bachelor's degree and starts working a couple jobs. He apparently even made a few gay dating site profiles under his alter ego he likes to go by named Jazzy Jet. I've managed to find a bunch of rather sassy photos of him in makeup and women's clothing as well as claims boasting to be the queen of his prior prison yard. And I'm not here to kink shame anyone. I'm just here to shame everything this fucking asshole does. I found the guy isn't so tough all the time, clearly. Just imagine him rolling around on the ground, smearing his 2000s era moose foundation into your carpet, which isn't as scary to think about. More life tips. This doesn't have too much relevance, but I noted that Joseph even took local karate classes while in Fargo. My guess is to find more potential victims, but whatever. This is also the same time he begins blogging his own website after making entries about his travels and thoughts on sexual offender reform. He was said to have actually been a great college student. He even made the dean's list, apparently. I guess he just did need a better environment to thrive in from the looks of things. However, let's not get too ahead of ourselves because we aren't done here yet. At this time, according to his blogs, he's traveling often to do scuba diving trips with Dr. Sugar Daddy, whose real name is Dr. Richard Waxman, just for clarity. Richard even tells police later that in March of 2004, Joseph had come down to Florida to visit and scuba dive. A few months later, in 2004, apparently Joseph has traveled to an area playground in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. While there, he lures two young boys into the bushes somehow and manages to grope a five-year-old. The boys were able to run away before Joseph had got a hold of the second boy, and he seemingly gets away with it for the time being. Joseph's blog indicates that he's, in fact, in the general area for scuba diving adventures with Richard as an alibi at the same time, but has admitted to these allegations since his arrest as well. A whole year goes by, probably because he lives in North Dakota, before he's officially charged for that molestation on April 5th, 2005. So then he calls his sugar daddy number two, the doctor, and he just writes Duncan a check for six grand to help him pay an attorney for his new molestation charges. So at this point, Joseph has seemingly suckered a third local businessman turned lover into paying his $15,000 bail that the county judge in Minnesota had posted on him the very same day. 
this Joe Creary, a local back in North Dakota, would explain that Joseph and him had met on the nearby bike trails and Joseph seemed like he had turned himself around being that he had two jobs, almost earned his bachelor's degree at the state university, as well as trust Duncan's proclaimed innocence in the Minnesota molestation charges at hand. He says they initially met in January 2004, but that's also when Jazzy Jet was let out the cage. Also, court documents later confirm their sexual relationship, so this dude's cocked like $20,000 out of three different guys, and the hustle is real. But he's really fucked now. Because with cash in hand from his doctor friend with benefits, he begins to get scared of returning back to prison for only groping the boy in Minnesota. He thinks that if he has to go back to jail, possibly for the rest of his life, it's going to be for the absolute worst thing he can think of. The dude starts planning his attack and takes off from Minnesota after posting bail and heads back to his place in North Dakota. At this point, he starts making a bunch of major moves, so I'm going to break it down as simply as I can so he can stay on track. The receipts show on April 13th that he's purchased a camcorder, telephoto lens, and a video game at Best Buy. It was Half-Life 2 for Xbox, if you're wondering. Not sure why, because he probably didn't have an Xbox, but my guess is probably to lure a child to an abduction. He then goes to Walmart the same day and buys another camcorder, a radar detector, and night vision monoculars. The next day, he travels back to Minnesota, stops at a Walgreens to pick up water, Pringles, trash bags, hair coloring, and a heart rate monitor. Next, on April 15th, Joseph has a conversation with Dr. Sugar Daddy, who lives in Florida. Joseph somehow manages to rent a car in St. Paul, Minnesota. That might be what the call was about, but he ditches his town car, and he says on the blog that he chose a red Jeep Cherokee because it seemed like the least suspicious car for what he had planned. On April 27th, he was found to have been driving all the way to Kansas City, Missouri again, where he steals the Missouri plates off one car and switches them with the Minnesota plates that he put on the Jeep he had rented. Transactions cease on April 28th at a KFC in Colorado. A federal warrant has now been issued for the arrest of Joseph Duncan. As in Casper, Wyoming, a log is found with a message carved into it saying, Deep in my dungeon, I welcome you here, signed with Duncan's inmate number from Walla Walla State, though it's only assumed he did this while on this road trip. The key tag for the Jeep Cherokee is also found in a parking lot area near the Bighorn Canyon National Park in Wyoming on May 5th, the same day it's actually reported now stolen from the rental agency in Minnesota that he agreed to have it back to by this point. After Joseph's arrest, it was found that he made 36 GPS points of interest along his road trip scouring the area for vulnerable children to abduct. Some of these points included children's bus stops in Montana, a family home in Lawville, Wyoming, another in Arley, Montana. What investigators find Duncan was not aware of was that his GPS tracking was on his Jeep he had rented the entire duration of the trip, starting in Minnesota and then choosing to come back to Idaho as his final destination prior to the murders. Joseph is on the prowl for as many children that he can abduct, rape, and kill before getting caught, and he is doing this to punish society for punishing him all these years. I wasn't kidding when I said this man is the absolute fucking devil, so... You'll learn why I use that particular phrase on next week's episode. This would be a great stopping place to give everyone a little break and maybe take a shower and get all that nasty off or like go cuddle your cats or something. When we return next week, we'll begin the terrifying series of events that finally lands this lint liquor in federal prison for the rest of his life and his inevitable execution in hopefully the few coming years. So that's what I got for you. 
I hope you enjoyed my rendition of this story, and if so, please tell all your creepy friends about it. You can find the sources I used for the episode in its description. You can follow my Instagram account at truecrimequeen for some laughs if you need a little pick-me-up after all that dark shit. Feel free to leave an honest review on iTunes, or maybe even consider clicking the link in the description to make a small donation to my equipment fund so I can keep making you guys some killer-ass content. See what I did there? I know. Right, bye!